with me today uh, is such a pleasure. I'm with Maxine Clark, uh, the founder and chief executive bear of Build-A-Bear Workshop. Uh, currently leads Clark, the Clark Fox Foundation um, and is all about entrepreneurship. Uh, Maxine, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's so good to be here. You know, I do have a copy of your book here in front of me. Uh, the bare necessities of business and I think for for listeners you know who are leaders in the marketplace uh, whether they're CEOs uh, entrepreneurs uh, emerging leaders uh, female executives there's just so much value um, from my research in in what you do who you are there's so much uh, great content in this book and I, I really wanted to start off with uh, the concept of vision. You, you talk about vision very early in the book and you talk about the importance of starting uh, without knowing exactly what the end result will look like. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't exact, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I knew it was going to be a retail business and I knew it was going to involve children, which I had been in the business of children, whether it was children's shoes or children's clothes or children's toys and accessories over the course of my retail career. So I did have a vision of the industry. I knew retail really well. I mean, at first I thought about not doing something in retail, uh, but it was such an important time. It was the beginning of the dot-com era and people were all automatically thinking everything should be um, on computer. Well, we, had, we started our business, we had that too, but, but still the customer, especially young children, um, want to ex have experiences. And we were talking about experience before anybody was talking about it because I missed it. I mean, I really felt like as a child, even when I went to the store, even if we didn't buy anything, somebody treated me special and I felt like I had enjoyed the experience of being in that store, that I wasn't a nuisance, that I wasn't just along for the ride, that I was there um, as important as my mother was who had whatever limited amount of money she had to spend. And so I wanted to bring that back to children because I sensed already retailers the company that I worked for, even though it was a great company, was starting to spend less, we were spending less and less time with the customer and more time with numbers, which was supposed to be about the customer, but it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't directly. And the only way you can get back with a customer in the case of children is to be with them, selling them stuff every day. So just being out listening with my best friend's children who were 10 and eight at the time, uh, we were looking for Beanie Babies and we couldn't find the one they wanted. They, Katie, who was the little girl, she said, well, these are so easy, we can make these. And that's really where the, the definitive idea for Build-A-Bear came. I said, that's it. We can create a store where kids make their own stuffed animals. And that was what I said in my head, and I saw the Willy Wonka you know, design for the store in my head. And we went home to my house. She meant go home and do a craft project. We went home, they went downstairs and got all the stuff out, and they were wondering where I was, and I was on the computer netscaping. Those were the days when you had to do that. Seeing if there were any stuffed animal manufacturing businesses I could buy and convert to this idea I had to be in the mall, be really accessible. I think I've always been about access, you know, whatever it was, like how do you get access to that? Um, sometimes access means how do you have the money for that? But mostly it means how do you get to see it, touch it, feel it, observe it? And um, so that to me was what, you know, we could all go on field trips, we could all go see a factory someday, we could all go to Disneyland and have these experiences, but, but how could we have it in our own backyard so that more and more kids could have it? and feel special. How do you tie in, because uh, you mentioned the word experience several times, some of the, the early leadership influences in your life, how has that shaped you as an entrepreneur? How did it shape, shape this vision that mm -hmm. you eventually turned into a reality in record time, mm -hmm. by the way? Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of those early leadership influences? It's so interesting because, you know, of course, when you're, you're going through your life, you're not looking at it and oh, that check, that was an entrepreneurship experience check. <laughs> but when you look back on it, you can feel where those, those aha moments were. And I'd say my first, my father was a, had his own business. He was in lighting sales and I would go to work with my dad. And that's kind of a classic story. I, my dad was very service oriented. Um, when, he, when he later went on the road and was a, more of a salesman, he um, you know, always brought gifts to people. He always had something in his trunk of his car, whether it was a calendar, a pen, a bottle of perfume, whatever it was, some little trinket. He was the like the quintessential premium buyer, you know, a salesman who brought gifts to his clients. But he always, they were, in his mind, they might have had his name on it and they might have had, um, been sort of mundane at, but he targeted them to specific people. He knew who liked his pens. He knew who wanted that, uh, he has a, a particular uh, item that's like a, 
a slicer, a, a, an envelope opener. He knew who liked that. They were kind of, he just knew who they were and what they wanted. And he always carried extras in case they wanted a bag of them or something like that. So that kind of is also thinking about how do you appreciate your customers? How do you know who they are? But, um, you know, as a customer, I, I went with my mother. I saw places that we shopped and who was nice and who wasn't and who, um, it was, a, the world was our oyster. I mean, it was, I grew up in the 50s and 60s when all kinds of impossible dreams were happening and everything could be possible for a child. And I observed all those. But really, when I went to school, I loved school. I loved learning. And in those days, you didn't learn to read before you went to school. Or I don't remember whether my mother and father ever read to me. Maybe they did. I don't really have a recollection of that. But I remember reading in school in our reading groups. But my first grade teacher, Mrs. Grace, was an amazing teacher. And she really probably put the first inkling of entrepreneurship um, in my head. Uh, every Friday at, at uh, about 2.15, she would go to her a pencil sharpener and she would take the red pen that red pencil that she graded our papers with and she would sharpen it on one of those like you know sharpeners on the wall that almost makes your neck crawl you know it just is like that noise of the pencil grinding away at the at the wood and she would sharpen it really sharp and to a first grader that pencil is like um, you know sharp pencils like a weapon but we were so excited because one of us was going to get that pencil and she didn't give it to the child that made um, was there every day on time or made the the straight A's or was the best behaved. The child who got the pencil every Friday was the child who made the most mistakes that week. And so think about that. You're six years old and it's okay to make a mistake. And in fact, it was a, a status symbol in our classroom in our desk little box that we had with our crayons and our paste and our scissors. How many red pencils did you have? And she was very smart. She did not do this to um, like let you cheat. Like if you spelled cat wrong every week, you wouldn't get the pencil. You know, it was meant to get you to encourage you to try new things, and you know, your instinct is always, "I got it, I got it." You're not really trying to be wrong; you're trying to be right. But still, on the other side of that right was an opportunity to um, have been rewarded for trying. And so, I think that stayed with stayed with me forever. Um, you know, I, later when I heard about business stories, like the story of um, 3M Post-its, that it was a mistake. I thought about my first grade teacher and that she would have thought that was one of the best ideas she ever heard because she rewarded us for you know being just children and how could we how could we not make mistakes at six years old you know so I, I really credit her and I didn't know the word entrepreneur and I didn't know that entrepreneurs make a lot of mistakes and I didn't know what she was really teaching us at the moment but as I as I kept getting older and older and I would think that why don't other teachers do that and slowly but surely that's beat out of you that I, you, know, you become a much more of a conformist, uh, you know, only raising your hand when you think you have the right answer. Um, or being the kid in the class that always asks the questions because you're not afraid, and that's who I was. I, was always, I always wanted to know more. I was always willing to ask a lot of questions. And um, I, I so credit her with my, you know, encouraging my curiosity and my willingness to take a risk. Yeah. In your book, you talk about only talking about what is possible, um, and they're just, it just seems to be a running theme through your life mm -hmm. and work, this, um, this mindset and this quality uh, about being positive and that everything is possible. Can you talk just a little bit about that and how you mm -hmm. transfer that belief to the people around you? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you'd have to grow up in my family to have been exposed to this, but my mother was uh, an amazing leader, uh, even though she was not a highly educated person. Um, she graduated from high school in New York at, a, at the age of 14, and uh, she, like they trained all women to do typing and secretarial work, she, but she had the good fortune to be uh, work for Eleanor Roosevelt uh, in Albany, New York, where my mother was born. And she later was picked by Eleanor Roosevelt to go to Washington, D.C. and be her private traveling secretary. So um, when you've got that in your background, you know, my, the, my mother was uh, a very, um, learned to be learned about every single ailment that existed in the human race because that's what Eleanor Roosevelt cared about. And when my mother, when the, when the war ended and my mother and my father moved to Miami, um, my mother was encouraged by Eleanor Roosevelt to um, work with children with, with differently, different abilities. And she chose to work with children with Down syndrome, but it wasn't called Down syndrome then, it was called mongoloidism. And my mother and the women that worked with her to found this school worked tirelessly to change the lives of children with this um, differently abled um, syndrome. And it changed the name. They, they, they uh, worked very hard to be in policy work as well as in um, advocacy work. 
Uh, they're not always the same thing, but in this case. So I, at a young age, I saw children that had been um, what most people might have considered deformed or different, or I saw what was possible. And if they could do it, I could do it. And I didn't know why my mother made me go with her every week to the school. And you know, one of the things that, that really uh, I loved was when, when um, the, the kids would see us coming and they would come and run up to hug us and kiss us. And they loved my mom. My mom was, you know, she, she went there every single day of her, her life. Uh, but, you know, she, and we would play with the kids and we would sit in the classrooms and we would do all the things that they were doing. But I knew that I had more than they had. And I had more ability, natural ability. And um, sometimes I really thought that I was pretty cool because I had that. But most of the time I was humbled by what's possible when you just have the will to do something and that you, where people around you see your potential and they absolutely, um, I don't know the word is right, force, but they um, inspire you to be all that you can be. And so children today live to be, you know, long into adulthood when they used to, their life expectancy was 18 to 20 years old. They are working and contributing and living a full life and some of the most incredible human beings on our planet. And that's not the way it was. So if that's possible, if that, something like that is possible, then what else is, what, what's so hard about everything else that we have to do? And so that's the way I was, I was formed as a child. And uh, we didn't have much. You didn't need much. You, know, you just need the love of, of your parents and a good school to go to. And, you know, some, you know, walking on the beach and, you know, luckily living in Miami, you could do that. What, you know, what more do you need? And I never, I can't remember. My dad would say this to me too. He'd say, you won't remember that you didn't have that because we, my parents couldn't afford everything. But I always had a bike. It wasn't a new bike. But I remember walking in the garage and seeing my dad polishing up the bike that he was getting ready for me and putting on the new little streamers and making sure the bell wasn't rusted. And to me, it was, it was perfect because my dad made it. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that he didn't make it, but um, I didn't know he was fixing it up. I just knew that I walked in and I knew I wasn't supposed to be there, and I saw it, and I was, you know, like, I thought my dad made my bike. What could be better than a bike made by your dad? Whether it was new or not, it didn't matter. But later I knew, I found out it wasn't new, and I didn't care, you know? So it just is all the perspective, and I think it's really important that we continue to make sure that kids have perspective. But I, I, mine came from early on knowing that what I had was more than what most kids have, even though I didn't think I had that much, and seeing what's possible when um, you want to learn, when you want to be exposed to new experiences, and when people give you the chance to do so, what's possible, what you can rise to. And that's what every single one of those children did. It appears uh, that you have this remarkable ability uh, to pay attention to what's going on around you. I'm very nosy. <laughs> it is this quality of, um, of caring, of noticing what's going on around you, but then processing it in such a way where you can bring value to other people and, and enrich other people's lives. When you think about leadership, Maxine, uh, what makes a great leader and how has leadership changed today in the 21st century? It's mm, a really good question. Well, I think leadership, first of all, is having a vision. It's seeing what's possible and then helping other people. It's sort of like a canvas, a, a blank canvas uh, picture. I'm not an artist, but I can sketch some stuff and putting it on a piece and le letting everybody fill in the, the colors. Um, it might be, end up, you might have thought, well, gee, this is going to be gray and black or it's going to be have some spots of yellow, but they add pink and red and blue and green and all kinds of colors to it, which makes it what it is. And that's exactly what Build-A-Bear was. I had the, a really good basic idea my Willy Wonka idea, my, it went off in my head and I put every idea I could have at the time when we started it into it because I knew if it wasn't successful, at least I'd put it in every idea that I had. But it was all the people that came to the table to work with us that added their value. I didn't, I had the idea, I didn't have the idea for the heart. One of my friends saw our bears and said, these bears have to have a heart. So I went and made hearts and we brought them. But it was a teacher that I hired who worked part-time in our company, Jeff Marks, who um, took the heart and turned it into a, an experience for our guests. And he taught kids to, if they wanted to be right-handed or left-handed, if you want it to be really smart, rub it on your head. If you want it to have a lots of love in its life, kiss it three times. You know, He made up all this stuff, and it became part of our culture. I would have never thought of that in a million years. And so we just really kept created a canvas that, go for it, you know, try it. If the kids want to do it, let's do it. And then we, then we told that to other stores, and we opened other stores, and they added their own personal touch. Uh, and so Build-A-Bear is today uh, a um, conglomeration of all of the people, all of the customers, 
and all of the associates that have worked for us and that may still work for us or don't work for us that added their special um, TLC uh, to the story. So, so great leaders have a vision and you put a plan together and you do your best to surround mm -hmm. yourself with like-minded people, like-minded achievers um, who are open to taking risks, uh, open to uh, taking action on a day-to-day -day basis. Where does the coaching element come in? Because I know in your book you, you touch on the importance of coaching and developing people. Mm -hmm. Where does that come in? Where does that come in in, you know, in your track record mm -hmm. for success? Mm -hmm. uh, well, all of us start out someplace where it's the newest thing for us. When I uh, had my first job in retailing, I started the executive training program at the May Company. And you know, we kind of came in as a class or a cohort and they sat us down in classes and they taught us things. Like, so it was really comfortable for me because I love school. And then we'd went, go to our departments and we'd work for the bosses that we'd work for. And some of us were lucky enough to have a good boss. Some of us were lucky enough that the, the boss just said, you figure it out. Either way worked for me, actually. Um, because I'm so curious and I just wanted, and I, I loved what I did. I mean, in fact, I actually went to Washington, D.C. to be a lawyer, to go to law school. And I had to go to work to pay for law school. And I got this opportunity because my boss, unfortunately, had, had a heart attack and so they needed his boss asked me if I could fill in uh, could I do more you know could I work longer hours could I travel I was like 22 years old I, I had to take a leave of absence from law school and I'm still on that leave of absence mm -hmm. um, so you know I just would say that I found something that I really loved and I should have known that because in college I took a lot of courses in advertising and marketing because that was my journalism was my major and I loved the idea of taking a business and making it into something but and my professor, one of my professors, you should go into retailing. And I thought I'm going to law school. I'm going to be a civil rights attorney. I'm, I'm not, you know, not business. I, I wasn't. I didn't. I love business. My dad was a businessman, but I loved. Uh, I didn't think of myself as a business person, and um, but it was perfect for me, and it allowed me to learn and grow, and um, and so people coached me, and I'd make a mistake, and somebody would take. I don't know why they felt that way because I know a lot of people are not comfortable giving um, feedback. But my bosses, for, with me anyway, maybe they felt it with me, but they gave me feedback. And they said, you know, sometimes I, I even would leave the room and cry. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't, somebody wasn't trying to kill me, but I was feeling like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. I'm so you know, upset with myself that I did it. But then I learned to, to not, just because it's results. They want you to do better. And that's another thing I tell young people is, if you really want to get ahead, go into a business where they can measure your, result, your individual results as well as your team results. So um, that's one good thing about retailing. Every day they could tell your sales. And in fact, by the time my boss came back, I did such a good job that they promoted me way ahead of, of, of schedule. But because they they trusted me and put me in this job, they know I couldn't do. They had to help me. Um, and I knew I didn't know it. Um, I had to ask a lot of questions. And so for me, that was a um, knowing that I didn't know everything and that I could ask questions made me think that that's exactly what you're supposed to do as a coach is help other people know um, so they can be successful too. And I never thought of it as a negative. In fact, it's the part that connects you to people. Um, uh, my bosses always took me, uh, there's so many stories I could tell you that are just amazing stories. And I bet everybody has them, but they may not have savored them as I have um, because I saw them all as opportunities. I can't remember even a time when I got a you know, negative, something bad happened in business or something like sales promotion didn't work that I can think of as a, you know, bad because it was a learning experience. And that was the way, one good thing about business, there's always another day to make up those sales. You have a whole year to make up those sales, so how do you, you know, keep doing it? Uh, and so it was a perfect place for me to, uh, to learn all that. And re I still say it to everyone, retailing, product development, consumer products, that, where you can set goals and deliver a product that fills a niche for people and then keep doing it over and over and over again. Not exactly the same way, but new products, new, it refreshes itself, is one of the most rewarding. I couldn't have gone into anything um, more rewarding and I feel like I really you know yes it was business and yes it was about profits but I don't feel I could have done anything more socially redeeming either um, because it was at a very important time I was in the business just in the early 70s when women were coming into the workplace and I was in the right place at the right time but I knew exactly what young women needed everything and I was the kind of person to bring it to the table and so I was very successful based on being who my customer was and when I got to a point where I wasn't not really exactly my customer anymore because I maybe gotten a little older or gotten a little bit more affluent, 
I, I would bring in, you know, the young people that work for me were also contributing to, younger than me anyway, were contributing to our success. And it was coaching, coaching, trying, failing, succeeding, trying again, you know, um, it, always a joy. I, I, I can't even think about how to work in a business where you wouldn't enjoy that part of it. Um, so it's a give and take. In your book, uh, Maxine, you say, you know, the best employers are those who think like entrepreneurs. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yes, people who are willing to always think about, you know, that there's another way to do it. You know, we get locked in our, and I think that's what's happened in the retail business. I think we, most retailers didn't anticipate what was going to happen with the internet. They thought, oh, customers are always going to go to the mall. They're always going to have to touch everything. Uh, they're always going to have to see, even children's shoes, which was one of the, the last things to go. You know, people have to bring their kids in to see if they, the shoes fit. No, you know, you can't think like that. You have to, there's always opportunity for change. And one of the things that I saw that I loved was that trying to figure out who was doing something successful and apply it to my business. So even if it was in a hotel, I loved the hospitality industry too, and I, I love to see how people, when they have an opportunity to wow you, how they do it, and then how could I put it in my business. And it, it is what I call um, the tiny noticeable things, TNT, little things that help you uh, make a difference for somebody. Um, so sometimes it's you know you you see it in hotels. It's like a they'll have a basket of apples or in a in a low in a Hampton Inn they'll do chocolate chip cookies at night. You can smell them when you're walking in the door, and you just know you have to have a chocolate chip cookie. And you're staying in this relatively low price hotel. What do we need? You know, chocolate chip cookie can kind of you know make that end of a day really great. You wake up in the morning and there's free breakfast. And you say how do you how do you incorporate those things into your own business? Um, I think they're brilliant. And yet they're really not, um, it's like kind of motherhood and apple pie. So for me, it's like being open all the time to uh, trying to figure out how somebody's doing it really well and how could we do it as well. And I think that technology's taught us a lot about access, how to give access to more people, um, how to simplify systems. And um, I love that. I, I, um, I can see a million ways that, that retail stores, three you know, bricks and mortar stores could be doing it so much better than they're doing it now because they haven't used they've they've used it as an um, because they had to rather than something that could re actually revolutionize their business as a consumer I could make I, I can see it every day I, I I try not to do this but sometimes I have to write a letter to the CEO and say I saw this and I think this is a great idea and I think you should you know consider it um, because I know how sometimes it, it goes to the wrong person it never gets there in the first place who who are some of these um leaders in the marketplace and entrepreneurs and, and CEOs that you found some some of your most most inspiration from you say you look to you know you have the humility as someone who's you know built several successful entities you know you still have the humility to be willing to look to others to see what you can learn mm -hmm. um, would you mind sharing maybe a yeah. couple of folks I'm a groupie you know for <laughs> um, People, like to me, a movie star would be like, you know, a movie star loosely would be Howard Schultz, who, you know, took coffee, or Ray Kroc, who took hamburgers, and made them um, something really special. I mean, maybe people wouldn't agree with me about McDonald's, but I think they took something and made it, you know, just so accessible, so and, and the coffee parts, you know, I, I grew up in coffee houses. We had them all over Miami, um, but not like that, even though they were there, the precursor. You know, to be able to sit and have a meeting and talk and, you know, leave and you didn't get drunk doing it. You were just had a cup of coffee. <laughs> you know, like it didn't have to be over something that was uh, a, a, a negative to your behavior. It could be something that was positive to your behavior. And the service that they provided for a $5 cup of coffee, whatever it is, um, $5 cup of coffee or even if you didn't buy a cup of coffee. I've always marveled at that and I think what he built, and I think Jeff Bezos, um, I admire him. I don't, I've never met him. I have met Howard Schultz. Uh, I think what he created, and I was the, the naysayer in that, like I said, oh no, I love books, I'm never going to um, get a Kindle, and so a friend of mine very early on bought me a Kindle for my birthday, and I have never looked back, and I own more books than I ever would have owned, hard <laughs> books books, and also online books. I, somebody, I'm in a speech, and somebody talks about a book, and it's, I bought it, you know, <laughs> and I, I'm just thinking, like, what could I, how would I have lived without, how did I do it before? I can take books everywhere I go. And so, um, you know, I, I admire that he saw something that all of us would eventually, you know, aspire to, um, even those hardliners who, you know, say, I have to have a book in my hand. Um, and I think he's built a great connection to, um, you know, thinking beyond that, you know, to how, 
how they know so much about us, they can suggest books to us. Um, how they know so much about now what else we buy, and they can suggest all those things to us. And I, I, I knew what I was getting into with all that information, you know, giving out all that information to a stranger, but somehow I trust him. I don't know why that is. The two things that I haven't had, um, uh, you know, uh, well, there's a few things, but I've been hacked, you know, but not my Amazon and not my Apple phone and not, you know, so there's something people you trust and not my Starbucks card either, you know, so I think those are kind of, I, I have a certain trust with them that, that we're kind of copacetic, you know, that we wanted the same things in a different format for people and uh, we uh, are continually working to make sure that people have the best we can bring them. Uh, we, the collective we of all the companies that we have. I also um, have a tremendous admiration for um, educators, people who teach, um, and um, because I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for my teachers. It was my teachers more so than my parents that encouraged me to go to college and to um, probe my deepest thoughts. Uh, and um, uh, I am for, I am still friends with a lot of them. I am so lucky, and I just think that. I worry about that a lot. What are going to, who are going to be the next teachers that are going to teach the future, doctors, lawyers, business people, if we aren't valuing um, the, the a teacher? So there, sometimes there are silent there are silent uh, heroes like a teacher, any teacher, but but many times there are business executives like that. I worked for a terrific man, David Farrell, who was my boss here in St. Louis, who was probably not the original visionary of the May Company, but brought it into the modern times, and he taught me so much. He taught me. Um, um, that business people can act in, with incredible integrity and incredible um, discipline and focus. And I wasn't the most focused because I'm so interested in everything. And he got, he really taught me how the importance of that. And I have tremendous respect for him. And he left the business early. He retired at 65 and he said he was and he did. And I think it was a big mistake for the company, but you know, that hit, you know, kind of set these goals. And I respect him for that. And I still see him and I, when I see him, I have this, my heart feels so much bigger because I wouldn't be where I, he says no, but I say yes, I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for David Farrell. So you mentioned your heart for educators and you have a heart for learning, which is just evident throughout you know, our conversation today. Um, when you think about these emerging leaders, not only the educators that are up and coming, but emerging leaders across industries, what would be your best tips for them who, you know, they find themselves sort of trying to navigate a very uncertain world? You know, technology, challenges and advancements, you know, I like to say the tennis racket you buy today is obsolete in six months, right? The, the global competition that is ever increasing, you know, what are you, what's your best advice for emerging leaders who are trying to navigate you know, and continue to grow their careers and make an impact. Mm. Well, the first thing that is really important today in today's world is to be continually curious. Um, you have to be curious about your, and the data allows you to do that, to be incredibly curious. And you have to study the data because, it, you know, it, otherwise it just looks like numbers. But out of it comes things that pop off the page that you can see patterns of behavior of, not so much to psych out your customer to, you know, get under their skin, but to really find out what it is they need and want, and how can you provide it to them in the most seamless way. And I think that uh, that is really, in any business, whether you're in the aerospace industry, the re restaurant business, the car business, if you aren't paying attention to your customer, you're not going to have them the second time, and because they have many, many choices. And I think that's one of the, the, the great things about um, what you were talking about, a new product, the tennis racket's gonna be obsolete. That's actually the premise of a retail business is that somebody's gonna want a new dress, a new tennis racket, a new pair of shoes, and they're gonna want whatever the latest and greatest is. And when you think they can't, somebody can't come up with it, they do. And so that to me is, that's, I, I am a, I love to learn, but I'm also, my, it's my curiosity that gets me most of the time, in, in, especially so now I have access to so many products I wouldn't have had access before. So they just come at you and you can try them, you can buy them. I'm fortunately in a position I can afford to buy most of the things that I just want, and if I don't like it, I, you know, I can just decide to toss it. But I'm mostly curious about how did, how did, the, how did they get me to click on it? Then when it, when I bought it, when I got it, did I really like it? Did it live up to its expectations? And if I didn't, uh, you know, then that's it. I just spent whatever I spent: fifty dollars, twenty dollars, ten dollars. It doesn't really matter. But, but, but when it's really good, when and that happens a lot. 
then I then I've learned something. I've got I've added to my knowledge, uh, even though I may not be in the retail business day to day, but I serve on the board of retail companies. I'm advising several small new product companies, and I can bring that that um, experience to them. It's all an experience today. It's all an experience. I mean, I used to feel like when I just walked by a store, maybe it wasn't, you know, you'd see a rack of clothes and you just walk by, but now you have to sort of engage with it. You have to click on it. Yeah. You have to you have to touch it. I might not have touched it before. I touch way, way more things, and I think that generally the consumer more co- consumers are touching more things. They may not be enjoying or buying all those things, but I have I I do. I'm a I've always been. Uh, a, the, uh, I'm probably the, the ultimate consumer, but I am. Uh, I love I love to discover. So it's a it's a it's that curiosity, and I think there's something to learn from all of those experiences. So. I, I think we're in a, in a really important time in our, in many ways, uh, politically and product-wise and all these things that are, you know, we have lots of choices and what do we choose to be as a people? What do we choose to care about? What do we choose to, to live with in our homes as uh, accoutrements or, uh, you know, what do we want to be? And we, it's the world's our oyster and it, more so than it ever was because before it was limited to where you lived and what shops were available to you, and if you had a car and you could get to that shopping center, or your, you know, somebody could take you there. But now, it doesn't matter where it comes from. I've actually bought things online that um, arrive in three days from Hong Kong. Wow! And you don't know you're buying it from Hong Kong. It's a, I'm a gadget person, uh, and I love you know the latest gadgets. And you'll buy something that is, I call myself one eight hundred sucker because I'll try just about anything. <laughs> if I decide how much it's worth, you know, okay. But you know, uh, always looking for that make something to make it easier or or better. And the um, comes from Hong Kong, so we're not even. I didn't know that. I thought I was buying from XYZ company, and they either making them to order or they're shipping you directly from their factory. And it doesn't. They add on the the cost of the goods. There's nothing. They probably add on a certain part of the FedEx expense, and you pay the rest of the shipping, and it comes to you. And amazing to me that that we've cut down the the time from uh, you know product to in your hands uh, so dramatically. So. Emerging leaders who are looking to uh, accelerate their careers and build businesses mm-hmm. and, and make an impact, how can they develop this? Can curiosity mm-hmm. be developed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it can. I think it's so important that we teach it to children, that, um, that we allow children so much space to um, music, art, dance, sports, yes, book learning, but all those other things around the book learning that, because if, if they're gonna be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, they're gonna be with people and have cases or patients that come from different walks of life and the more they know about life, the better they'll be able to be at that. But they don't know yet what they wanna be. or And so all those things, I remember how many different things I wanted to be. And that's what it's sort of part of childhood. But if you've been born with that, then you can keep it up. But I think you can start it. And um, and I think biz, it's up to us as, as leaders and business and coaches to inspire that. I, I actually, when I interview, I'm usually like the seventh or eighth person that interviews someone. But I don't want to know, I assume that the other people figured out whether they could do the job or not. I want to know what they're interested in. So I, I'll, you know, ask, you know, what, have you read any good books lately? No, I don't have any time to read. That's kind of a negative for me. Or, you know, any magazines or, you know, what, what do you, what, what interest, what, what are your outside interests? Do you have any, are you involved in any charitable, you know, uh, anything outside of your family? No. Um, you know, I have a little son, and my wife and I spend all of our time on our son. Oh, where do you like to take him? Well, uh, we, all, we have to go everywhere that's free. That's okay. So what, what's your favorite place? You know, like, when you have to drag that out of people, that's not a person that would work well with me. They wouldn't be as responsive to the, the, the stimulus that are in our business from our customers. They won't be sensitive to the ideas that come from our associates. They're just sort of in their own little tunnel vision. So I look for that in people. You know, what kind of, what's, what, what's their... Uh, curiosity quotient and if they have a little bit I know I can inspire more of it because we are constantly feeding information to our associates even uh, today um, even though I'm not involved in Build-A-Bear on the day-to-day basis we have so much information about our customers and it, it's like ginning up new ideas and new products and new services and then the same thing's true with other companies that I that I advise um, I'm constantly sending them things that they don't even see themselves and part of the reason I'm sending it to them is that I know when somebody sends me an article that I really like, and that's from a news source or some source, I, I probably subscribe to it. I said, well, that's interesting. Maybe I'll subscribe and see if I get a couple of more good 
and I hope that they'll do that too, and I think they do. And, and they'll say back to me, thank you for sending me that. I didn't even know that that source existed. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't think it's BS when people do it like that. I think it's real. I can tell when it's fake. Um, and I don't care if they don't answer me at all, but I just, I'm still going to keep sending it. Because uh, I, th I see things that d differently, and I just hope that people will send things to me that they think I might enjoy or might learn from as well. And they, they usually do because they know I'm curious. Any given day, I can get you know tons of stuff in, and I subscribe to a lot of newsletters that are about things I didn't know anything about a, a minute ago. Um, and a little bit of information can be dangerous too, but it's also the, begins to like lay a platform for f foundation for more information. So the first time you hear it, you might not. Ah, that's kind of a trend, or maybe that that's interesting. The second time you say, well, that's coincidental. The third time you might realize, hey, this might be a trend, and you've got to act quicker than you ever had to act before. So I, that's what I, that's to me the, the reason I do it. Um, and I also feel like there's so many things colliding right now in our society, good and bad, that um, how do we uh, control for it? If we can control it, I'm not sure we can, but you know, we all try to a little bit um, and, and make sense of it. So we can either redirect it so it's positive or ignore it if we don't want to deal with it or um, at least understand it so we can Maybe not be willing to deal with it yet, but we have to deal with it eventually. I, I you know, I think uh, aging is one of those things in our society that we nobody really worries about it until it comes about, and you know, yet we could, you know, there's lots of ways we could make that process for people a lot um, more productive and a lot more um, uh, healthy, and yet because we just ignore it till we have to deal with it, but you know, all along the way we could be being healthier, and we just don't realize we don't believe it until it's. Oh, I wish I'd done that 20 years ago. I wish I ran all those miles, or I wish I... And I, I think there's a way that we could have gotten through to each other, or somebody could have gotten through to me. They just weren't relating it to me. Um, but, I, you know, I think there's all those kinds of things, and I think now we can, we can have access to that information. I'm talking about a lot of different things, but I think that's about life. And when you're dealing with the consumer businesses, particularly, you're dealing with customers that have all kinds of issues. I, it, it, in a given day in Build-A-Bear, this is true, a customer can come to us, a little kid can come to us to celebrate their birthday, uh, a parent can bring a child after their chemotherapy because they promised them if they could make it through this chemotherapy, they would come to Build-A-Bear. Uh, a, a parent can bring in children after school because their grandparent just died um, and they wanted to do something and they're going to make a bear that they're going to put in the, in the um, coffin with the grandparent. Or their grandparents are sick in the hospital and they want to make them a bear so they'll remember them and they'll put their voice. Or a grandparent will come in and record their voice at a bear because they want their grandchildren to always have it. Or somebody will come in and say, make a bear and say, will you marry me? I mean, all these things happen in one day in our store. Can you imagine the emotions our store people go through in any given day? Thank good goodness we're all so appreciative of this. But, you know, how do you, how do you enjoy that? And how do you maximize it? And um, we have, we don't, it's not so much that we have to make them certain people in order to deal with all those things. We have to hire certain people who are, can, can manage all those different emotions. And how many people are lucky enough to be in a business um, where emotions are part of the business? Well, Howard Schultz, Maxine Clark, Jeff Bezos, many, many other people who think their customer is more than just a, a statistic on a piece of uh, a data card. Before we wrap up with a few rapid fire questions, uh, which most of my guests actually find really fun. Uh, Maxine, I want to sort of gain your best strategies for productivity. I mean, you have a track record of um, creating success faster than most. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for leaders who want to accomplish more in less time, what would be your recommendations? What are some of the habits and practices that that uh, that you adhere to on a day-to-day -day basis that have really helped you? I am the worst person to ask that question because <laughs> I have um, endless energy and time to um, dig in and study things that mo the average person, so I have no time management skills. Whatever <laughs> I learned from my boss who was really good at time management when I was working for someone else, I have give, I've, I've sort of said when I can do it myself the way I want, I'm going to just luxuriate whatever I want to luxuriate in. So. Um, the internet makes that possible too. You can click on a story and dig down, 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 down to, you know, you could spend hours reading and learning about something. So I'm not really good at that, but I'm I am a highly productive person because of my curiosity. I have a lot of interests, and I, those interests click for me. And so 
even though I might be on multiple boards in multiple forms of education, like early childhood or middle schools or high school, it's all related. And I can see the connection between that. I have a really good sense about that, where a lot of people, they're sort of lost when I'm talking to them. They go, really? I, didn't, I never saw that. And so for me, it's not really more. It's, it's a continuation of. You can see the dots. Yeah, I see the dots, and I see the connection. And so it's just sort of making the story more um, complete for me. You know, it's because I'm understanding the different parts of it that go into it. I mean, we're living in times when so many things, so many social issues create the ills of our society or the betterment of our society. And if you don't understand what, what they are and you just ignore them, they're either going to get worse, they're probably going to get worse, not better. And so and you can't fix everything, but you can at least understand what's in the way and maybe mitigate for that. Um, also, I'm a person who likes to look at the big picture and see um, what's the pros and what are the cons. And I'm never, I'm not, a, you know, I'm, I believe in the possibility. It's not that the cons are ever going to happen, but if they do, this is what I would do. And if you don't think about them, you never, you, you won't be prepared. And they do happen. And that's why I think they've never been problems for me, because I sort of thought they might happen, and so I was prepared for them. And so when it happens, oh, we've got an answer for that. Let's just keep moving. And I think that really would, would make our world a lot better place, because I don't think we understand the unintended consequences of some of the things that we do, because we... We just don't think about it. We're going to only think about the good or, or we, we'll worry about that later when that comes about. And then it's late. You're either, you're really, you know, either running around to get money, you're, the, the roof just caved in and you haven't, don't have a plan. Whatever it is, that's a lot of wasted energy to me. Planning is, is planning so that you can respond appropriately. The plans, it's ne it never goes exactly as planned, but that you have a plan in the first place and you thought it through helps you kind of navigate. So I'm, a pretty, I'm pretty good at that, but I am not a good time management person. As you can tell by this interview, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> Maxine, what's, what's your favorite word in the English language? Uh, yes. And why? Because I believe if we have the will, we can make it happen. Uh, we can find the cure for what ails us and uh, we can help others and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, there's no for me the word I, you t if you say no to me that is going to make me you know get work so does that take care it. of my next question or as far as what your least favorite word is yeah <laughs> is it no yeah it's probably no um I, I really just want us to be able to think of what's what's always possible and to me there's that the no no is never a word i mean my parents i don't remember a no do you think about legacy i do think about legacy a lot and what, what's your desired legacy? I've thought about this a lot because my mother died at 56 years old and her, she has a lasting legacy. I mean, she built a school for children with Down syndrome and it still exists today. And um, I don't know that anybody there knows that, you know, who the women were that founded that organization, but the fact is it lives on and in children. And I have friends who have children with Down syndrome and every time I see them, I know my mother would be so happy um, because that child's living a normal life. Um, but I, I think that I just want people to know that I cared, and I, I really did care. And that's what I think they'll say about me, that I cared. Was there, um, was there a moment early in your career, early in your life, because there was for me, mm -hmm. where I read a random article in Parade Magazine on football coach John Gruden, and he had won, believe it or not, this award, and it was called Most Caring Coach. And something about that title, you know, it wasn't most valuable coach and it wasn't most popular coach, it was most caring, that really resonated with me. Is there a moment that you could point to where you were like, that's exactly who I want to be. I build a business, it just in the world, my identity, I want to be known for caring about, you know, the, the impact and the influence on, mm -hmm. on other people. No, you know, I think I was the opposite. You know, I wanted, my mother was such a, uh, uh, a good doobie, you know, she was so known for her work for children that were differently abled. She would never say disabled. Um, and I kind of wanted to do everything opposite of that. It wasn't that I didn't want people to care about me, but I, or, or, or me, that I didn't care. I just wanted to be a capitalist. I wanted to, I wanted to have enough money to do the things I wanted to do, to go to the places I wanted to see. And, um, but I, it, it, it does have a huge influence on you. And I love my mother and I love my father. They were very different people. And I, I was able to get the best of both of them, and my it wore it, it it had an imprint on me. I do think that something that really was early, um, 
I did know that um, I, I didn't know much about about philanthropy and charity, but my grandpa, who did not speak uh, English, um, and had little literally no money, but if I had a quarter or, or a, a dime, he would give me ten pennies, and he would say, "You have to put these divide in, in his broken English, put it in the bank." And the he had made me a bank out of a tin can that had sections, and I don't even know if it all the way down it went all the way down, but it did. I think it did. It, so this was for you know for charity. This was for me, and this was for something for somebody else to buy a gift for somebody else. And so I always had these little envelopes in my head or in in this jar of charity of. Um, uh, so, so he and he said to me one time, and he said it in in uh, Yiddish, but it meant basically, if you have, um, you're never poor if you give to somebody else. You're always richer than someone else, and uh, that taught me a lot. You know, it was like I I kept thinking I when I could give, and when I went to work for the May Company, which was a very charitable company, um, I remember that one of the things I was most proud of was they had a matching gifts program and. So at first I gave fifty dollars or I gave a hundred, but when I when I was rewarded for having been the per, the person in the company and I wasn't the highest level executive who'd maxed out on my matching because you could only they would give up to like five thousand dollars they could would match your contributions that I was the per, I was one of those people I felt so rich and I and I, I remember I said my grandpa would be so proud of me I knew that mm -hmm. he would be and I, it wasn't that I was so rich it was that my twenty five hundred got matched you know everything got got bigger because I. Of somebody else, you know, contributing. So I think I I knew early, but I just did. You don't. You're just a kid. You know, you're not really thinking about those things. You do it because you have to, but uh, or somebody makes you. Or you, but it does wear off on you, and it does it does help build your character. So I tell my friends with little kids, you know, it's worth it. Keep doing it. I don't care if they don't like it. Keep you know keep pushing away because I didn't like it either. But you know, it 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 sunk in in the right way for me. And I think charity is about people who. Who want to give money to something that they want somebody else to do the work, and philanthropy is something where you give the money and you want to be engaged in the work, at least be knowledgeable about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I, most of the people I know are more engaged in philanthropy than they are in charity. Um, and I think that I'd like to be able to teach people about philanthropy. It doesn't matter how much you give; it's that whatever you're giving to, you care about it and it means something to you, so that you can help make a more profound difference beyond your money. Uh, and I think that's really the most rewarding uh, part. And I think my mother um, always felt that. You know, she always felt that. And I think that came from seeing somebody like Eleanor Roosevelt, who was pretty much a, a pioneer. Um, and um, I'll show you a picture of of that. But you know, it's a uh, you know, boy oh boy, was I a lucky girl. I, I feel very very fortunate. And I you know, I think everybody has a purpose. You know, God has a purpose and a plan for us. And I had to be that kind of snarly kid that wanted to be a capitalist who turned out to be, you know, a, a good a philanthropist. Caring, a caring capitalist. Yeah, caring capitalist. And I didn't, you know, that was Howard Schultz and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and, and, and Paul Allen who passed away yesterday. What a, what amazing people and examples they set for our society. And I hope those stories stay with us for a long time so that other children uh, can meet in their own generation people like them uh, as well. And like yourself, Maxine. Um, Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, it's been amazing just listening to your stories and your insights. What cool stuff, what are some of the coolest things you have going on now and where can people find you? One of the best things I'm working on, and I work on a lot of really good things, is my uh, this project on Del Mar to transform an old historic hospital into um, a Cortex-like uh, facility for nonprofits. You know, I'm observing a lot about Cortex, and one of the things at St. Louis, when we do something really right, we do it really right, and but we don't necessarily duplicate our own successes as fast as we could. We're still waiting to prove it. But I, I saw how well that worked, and when I was working in um, the neighborhood in the West, in the West End, uh, this hospital closed, the old St. Luke's Hospital closed, and when I saw the sign going in, there were, that day I drove by, they were nailing it in, and I thought, oh my God, they're going to tear this down and turn it into tenement apartments or something. It, we, we have to re preserve it. And I went and did some history on the history of the building, and I found out what an unbelievable place it was. And I said, we've got to convert this into the same thing that we have down at Cortex for nonprofits. Um, and it, it's a pretty big project. It's a big undertaking. But it also has this ability not only to transform a neighborhood to be someplace where young people will have a 150 apartments for teachers, nurses, social workers, people that I've been admiring for a long time, that in St. Louis still have a hard time finding a great place to live that's affordable. 
um, as well as um, it, the people that work in the nonprofit businesses that are there. Uh, we're gonna the, the lobby. We're gonna capture the memories that people have of this hospital. So many people stop me and say, "You're working on that project. I was born there. My mom went to nursing school there." Those are stories. I'm not from St. Louis, but I love the history that St. Louis has, and I want to help preserve that because I think there's parts of it that we should really um, keep moving forward, build as built as a foundation, but not go backwards with the um, with some of it. And then, um, so I think it's going to be a, a, a game changer for St. Louis. Uh, again, proving that we can do these kinds of things and we can we can apply from one sector of for-profit to the non the nonprofit business, which is about 10% of our economy here in St. Louis. Um, and it's in a neighborhood that's, you know, it's an amazing neighborhood. I can't even believe it's still not been one that's been, you know, highly invested in. And I don't want to gentrify the neighborhood to the point that people can't live there affordably, so we're, we're really working hard on that. Um, but you'll find me there, and you know I'm I'm like walking around the building, showing people the building, or I'm working in meetings in the neighborhood, I'm having coffee with somebody who uh, wants to be in our building, and uh, it's everyone's so excited about it. So I know it's going to be success. Will you show it to me sometime? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful. Uh, it it has great ghosts, great ghosts inside. When you walk through the building, you can feel that it was once a very caring place. And you even see the donor names on the wall. I mean, they left like in a puff of light, you know, and they just left and there's stuff up, there's towels in some of the rooms and there's, you know, there's no more furniture there really, but there's like in the chapel, there's a podium like where the minister might have been and then there's some Bibles and there's a, ch a few chairs there. But I said, what happened? How did they, how did they decide this stayed and that left? And I think there's a story there. And where can people find you online? Online? Um, well, my email is Maxine, M-A-X-I-N-E at Clark, C-L-A-R-K hyphen fox, F-O-X dot com. And I'm pretty responsive. Um, so I'll look forward to hearing from people. If they said they heard me on your on your uh, show, I'll be glad to respond to them. I, I'm, I love to respond to people. Maxine, I want to thank you again for your generosity, uh, your time, um, and your stories. Uh, absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. You're welcome. It was fun. You're easy.